Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I appreciate you gathering. This is the last uh, Thursday morning chapel for this semester series and uh, something special, a uh, panel with several guests uh, to discuss uh, issues related to the Southern Baptist Convention. So we appreciate you gathering and we'll get underway in just a moment. Uh, we regret that Dr. Paul Aiken is unable to be with us this morning uh, due to illness. And uh, we are glad that Dr. Jeremy Pierre, Dean of the Graham School, is able to be with us. So uh, the first thing I'm going to ask Dean Pierre to do is to lead us in prayer as we begin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do praise your name for your church, the blood-bought people of God that are filled with the Spirit, Lord, that you purchased for your own glory and your good pleasure. We thank you for the church, Lord. We thank you for our local churches, Father, who have assembled into an association, a denomination called the Southern Baptist Convention, and we are grateful for it as well, Lord. We do pray for the pastors and leaders, as well as the folks in the pews in these church, that you, we would be united in the truth of your word, that we would be united in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ in how we treat one another, as well as how we treat our neighbors, Lord, out in the world. Father, would you make us a shining witness to them? May we be bold to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, and may we be known as a people full of love and full of gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Uh, we do regret Dr. Aiken could not be with us. We very much appreciate Dr. Pierre joining us as uh, Dean of the Graham School. Then next to him, uh, Dustin Bruce, who is a Dean, of course, of Boyce College. And a member of the college faculty, Dr. Denny Bruce, who teaches New Testament and uh, well, any number of things, actually. You don't stay in your lane. Denny Burke. <laughs> you said Dr. Denny Bruce. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. We're starting out strong. You know, this is that's right. We used to know each other, but I've been <laughs> my, on sabbatical and you <laughs> forgot. My dear colleague, Dr. Such starts with a B. Denny, thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. All right, well, it's an illustrious start to our conversation here. Uh, first, I just want to say we are here to uh, address the question, what in the world is the Southern Baptist Convention? So, Dr. Bruce, just, just what is the Southern Baptist Convention? Yeah, good question. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is a, uh, a family of churches uh, or, you know, a a grouping of churches that have been around now for uh, quite a long time for the purpose of uh, missions, for the purpose of gathering together because we believe that we can do more together than we can do apart. Uh, I believe that um, is uh, really key to who we are. Now, it's obviously Baptist churches, so that may be even worth defining, right? We're a group of churches that believe in these sort of core tenets of the Baptist faith. That, Believer's baptism by immersion, congregational church government, and uh, those types of things really regulate how it is that we associate together. Yeah, the uh, Handbook of American Denominations, if you just look it up, it's going to list the Southern Baptist Convention as a Baptist denomination. And uh, the Southern Baptist Convention does denominate. It's a name. What denomination actually means is how you say it's this rather than that. 
But the SBC is not a denomination like most of those other denominations in that there's not any kind of stable official list of who is an SBC church and who is not. And um, there is no uh, credentializing agency, you know, for ministers. Uh, you, you know, you, a local church can ordain a pastor and doesn't have to call anyone or get anyone's permission. There isn't a bishop uh, over the churches, that is. And so when a lot of people outside the SBC look to the SBC, they think they're seeing the United Methodist Church or, or the Episcopal Church USA, and clearly we're talking about two different worlds uh, there. Uh, or, you know, they think it, it, increasingly in the press, it's, it's like a Baptist version of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's just not that and has never been that and can't be that given our polity. Right, Jeremy? <laughs> our polity does not allow that. That's exactly right. So explain that. Well, so we believe in the autonomy of the local church, and it's a voluntary association uh, to be in our convention. And the way they participate in that is by cooperating by, uh, in missions, by sending money and funding and things like that. So there's no authoritarian hierarchy or, or oversight. Uh, no one in, Nash in the offices in Nashville, our executive committee offices, can tell a pastor what he needs to do in his church or congregation. So it's just fundamentally a different thing. But there are two sides to this. And that is that the SBC has no power over congregations. Any one congregation. Any single congregation in the Southern Baptist Convention can tell the Southern Baptist Convention to go home. But the Southern Baptist Convention has the sole sovereign authority to determine its own membership. And so there is no one to say to a church, you can't baptize that baby and say, we have the right to send some denominational official to take your property uh, or to assume responsibility for your ministry if you violate that. But the SBC has the sovereign right and responsibility to say, we're a fellowship of Baptist churches that believe in believers baptism by immersion and thus that defines our membership. So we're not telling you what to do, but you're not a Southern Baptist church. That's right. And that's why the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is so important because that's what we're volunteering to say, this is what our church practices and believes and teaches as part of what it is to be in the SBC. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a good place for us to start. That twofold understanding, everything we talk about here means that the SBC has no power over the local church, but it has the absolute power to define its own membership. And uh, in the early years of the SBC, that was an issue from the beginning, different set of issues. Uh, you have what was known as a landmark controversy in some of those early decades, uh, you know, that defined the local church in such a way that it, it would have been difficult to have a, a Southern Baptist convention, you know, basically nothing beyond. There, there were those who were against having mission boards because they didn't believe of the, uh, in the existence of boards beyond the local church. And of course, that's, that's pretty hard to reconcile with the Southern Baptist Convention, which was formed for the sole purpose of creating those two boards. And so there were, there were some, you know, the SBC's never been a placid pool, which kind of brings us to today. There's, there's never been a time when the Southern Baptist Convention was just a thing inert and quiet, right, Denny? 
Not since I've been alive. You know, I was born in the midst of uh, the... You've con- read a little history, too. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's been, of course, the conservative re- resurgence was what I grew up in. That was the context. Now, I didn't grow up in churches that were on the conservative side of the conservative resurgence. Uh, we were, I was in churches that were more associated with the, with the moderate side of, of the controversy. And, and I can remember, you know, in those days when I, our pastor came home and said that we were going to have an option to contribute either to the cooperative program or to the cooperative, uh, uh, the cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Was that what it was? Honestly, I did not know this about you. Oh, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that that happened when I was in uh, like the eighth or ninth grade, something like this. And uh, it, it seemed to me at the time the world was a lot bigger because there wasn't social media and we just knew what our, our pastor was was, was telling us, uh, it seemed like a controversy. And for the person in the pew, it's like, why can't we just all get along and focus on salvation? But there were really enormous theological issues that were in play, uh, which I finally came to figure out in college and afterward. And so th- these are important things. We're not arguing about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. We're talking about what's going to define our cooperation together. That's what the, the conservative resurgence was all about. And it certainly was about who, how are we going to move forward together in mission? That's right. the key thing. Right. And most directly, the controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention, known as the conservative resurgence, the first issue was over how the entities of the convention uh, would be organized, what, what the entities would expect. And uh, so it was about who would teach and who would not teach in the seminaries and uh, who would and would not be appointed as missionaries. So that was the first level. But of necessity, those issues filtered down to the local church. And uh, so, for instance, right now, uh, a church that makes a statement positive about homosexuality uh, is removed from the Fellowship of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, someone asked me the other day, were there any records of that happening back in, say, the 1940s, 50s, or 60s? And the answer is obviously no, because there wasn't a single denomination in the United States that would have considered such a thing. But different times bring different challenges. All right, so the conservative resurgence, let's talk about that for a few moments. What was that issue really all about Dustin. I mean, what was what 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 was the key issue? Why was there such a movement? And what we know was the conservative resurgence. Sure, I, the key issue I think is the authority of Scripture. Right? Are we going to have uh, churches and therefore an association of churches that submit themselves to the authority of Scripture in their faith and practice? I think it, at the very base level, uh, that that's what it came down to, and it takes a lot of different forms, but that's at the bottom of it. Yeah, the key term of debate was inerrancy, so much so that it was called the inerrancy controversy. And uh, so that was what was really fascinating is that you had people because everybody in the Southern Baptist Convention said they believed in the authority of scripture. I mean, everybody claimed to have a a high view, that was the way it was put, a high view of scripture. But the defining issue erupted first outside the SBC in the larger evangelical world. That's why the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy goes back to the late 1970s. And it was just before that controversy really came to a a boil in the Southern Baptist Convention. And it it came down to the fact, okay, everybody says they have a high view of scripture, but over here, you are clearly denying scripture in your hermeneutic. You're clearly 
uh, denying the clear teachings of Scripture. You are, you are claiming to have a high view of Scripture. And, and this had uh, erupted in, in British evangelical life before it really erupted here in a clear way among evangelicals. And so the word inerrancy, uh, I mean, Southern Baptist moderate said, you know, it's a, it's a Yankee word, uh, one uh, agency head in the SBC said. Or, or at, even before that, they said, you know, it's a British word. Uh, but it became the word that really did define the issue because there were people by the thousands in the SBC, at least in terms of their church membership, who denied the inerrancy of scripture. They said, we do not affirm the inerrancy of scripture, that scripture is inerrant and all that it uh, contains, all that it teaches. And it, the, basically that's just uh, a statement of the total truthfulness and trustworthiness of scripture based upon the fact of, that it's verbally inspired. Every word is inspired and every word is equally inspired. That implies a hermeneutic and we were off to the races, right, Denny? No, absolutely. Whether or not God can err is what was at stake in that. Because if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, which we do, and then you say that it errs sometimes, you're basically saying that God errs. So it's, it's all about the authority of God, the authority of scripture. And that was the fundamental you know, issue during the conservative resurgence. Now, I think it took concrete expression in a way that people could relate to in, in terms of the women in ministry question and then the abortion question. Those, th those, those two issues seem to crystallize um, people's devotion to authority or scripture or not during the controversy, which is, shouldn't be lost on anyone because they are related. Right, but I, don't, I, I, I do want to say that in my analysis living through all of that, uh, the two, and I'll use a sociological term here, salient terms were uh, inerrancy and the sanctity of human life. And the issue of abortion emerged in the culture, not within Christian circles, but it divided along almost exactly the same lines. I say almost, but it was almost exactly the same lines. And so there were people who said, professors in seminaries, who said, I have a really high view of scripture. I, I hold to Southern Baptist doctrine. I love the 1963 Baptist faith and message, and I support abortion rights. And, and the lights went on in a lot of Southern Baptist minds, hearts, and churches. They said, well, that, that is not gonna happen. If you believe in abortion and abortion rights, then something is horribly deficient in your doctrinal system. Right, because one of the key words you said about inerrancy is it means that all of scripture is inspired, which means that that has implications for the authority issue big time, because that means everything is authoritative in the word and it dictates how we see the world. It's not how we see the world dictates what the Bible is saying or what we claim to be reliable within the pages of scripture as we make our own selection of that. And so the, the, the scriptures present to us an understanding of people that is cosmic in its value and importance because we're made in the image of God. And that disrupts all kinds of things that we prefer in our own convenience, in our own, in the way we've constructed sort of a modern way of living. And that's why submission to the word would demand, I mean, you can see where these two issues go together, inerrancy and the, uh, the sanctity of life issue. You're a man of very sound thought, 
Very strange socks. Very strange. I didn't hear that. I'm socks. Oh, socks. Thank you. Yes. It is the orthodoxy of this institution. These are actually some of my more tame socks. So. It is the orthodoxy of this institution that a man's socks should be vertical. <laughs> right. Okay. Noted. So Noted, Baptist sir. Baptist Faith and Message 2022. Right, there you That's go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of inerrancy, right? That's right. That's right. All right. We're having fun here. Once you get to that point, and you raise exactly the right issue, the Bible defines reality for us. We don't define the reality by which we'll accept the Bible. Then we have to face the fact that there are many things common to um, many churches and even denominations that can't be common to us. There, there are things that other denominations, other churches will do and teach. And inside the Southern Baptist Convention, practically the issue of women as pastors and as, as teachers of scripture uh, to the congregation, this really became the explosive issue. I mean, so much so that you had, uh, of course, an, an entire alternative denomination or convention structure, and actually more than one, uh, that emerged in response to the conservative uh, uh, the resurgence in the SBC. But you also had special interest groups, and the biggest of them, the most well-known of them, were groups about women in ministry. And uh, I arrived at Southern Seminary as a student in 1980, and uh, this had been building in the 70s, but it really took on an enormous amount of energy that women should be pastors of churches, that the church had misread scripture for, uh, for 20 centuries, and uh, that this was, uh, this was the inevitable wave of the future in the society, and thus the church was gonna have to be reconciled to it. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention definitively said, that's not where we're going. And uh, actually said that uh, every way it could until it eventually made that clear in the 2000 revision of the uh, Baptist faith and message. But we're sort of back there again in conversation, Denny. So how did that happen? Yeah. Would you permit me to ask you a question? Were you there at the convention where the, in 1984 when we yes. adopted the resolution? Could you tell everyone what that was about and what that, that meant at the time in the midst of the controversy? Yeah, so uh, the SPC basically takes uh, two forms of action that most people talk about, uh, motions and resolutions. Uh, motions require action. So a motion by the Southern Baptist Convention requires somebody to do something. That the uh, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention would do this. Uh, normally it wouldn't instruct an agency like that or to say that, uh, that the convention itself will do this. Uh, a resolution states the beliefs of the uh, denomination, uh, of the convention as messengers meet. And so, oddly enough, uh, an, several conventions over the course of the last several years, people come out talking about the resolutions more than they have the motions, because they're sometimes the most interesting part. 1984, the issue of women in the ministry, that's what it was referred to then, was so hot that uh, the SBC was presented with a resolution that, that just said that women should not serve in the pastoral or teaching office 
uh, and it passed in 1984. And, uh, and yet the moderate institution said, well, it's not binding on, um, on the institutions. And uh, there was a lot of controversy about that in 1984. I was a part of that controversy in 1984. Um, frankly, I didn't have a very good understanding of that issue in 1984. And uh, I say that with some embarrassment now. But uh, the, the people who were behind that resolution were in the right. Um, I will also say that in 1984, it was very difficult to believe that there was going to be any significant number of women you know, serving in these kinds of capacities. Uh, but that, became to mushroom, that began to mushroom. And so it, you look now at something like the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and I mean, it's kind of like what's happening in a lot of more liberal seminaries. The majority of enrollment is now women. You can feel free to follow up on that. No, I, for me, it's just really important because the more I talk to students yeah. who are coming to campus, there's a people, the coming generation doesn't know what happened and doesn't know what, you know, for us defined us and defined our generation, which was a battle for the Bible, essentially. And it was, you had these salient issues that were related to that, but you have to understand the way things are now, they haven't always been that way here. Um, the things that we, you can kind of take for granted for now were once very contested, even right here. And so, no, especially are, right here, especially, I right. mean, this, this institution zero. took on self-consciously the lead role in pushing for women serving as pastors of churches in the 1980s. During that time, it was this institution that really was most vocal. Southeastern Seminary would have, uh, would have been similar, but uh, no, that's a, that's a part of the history of both the SPC and this school. Uh, and of me just having to live through that and figure these things out. Um, I was 34 at the SBC in, in 1984. And, uh, and, and by the way, there was no uh, Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, there was no Danvers Statement. Uh, the, the, again, it's one of the principles of church history is that the church often has to develop answers to wrong teaching or wrong practices after those teachings and practices appear. It, take, it, it takes some time for the church to say, no, that's not right, and then to define what, uh, what the right position or orthodoxy according to scripture is. Yeah, agreed on that. And I, I would encourage students, if you haven't, you can go online now and you can see, I think it was your first Q&A that you did once you became president. I, right I, I was president-elect and nearly president-elect Deceased. Yeah, that's right. But it happened right here in this room, and you stood right here, and one after another, students came forward, and this was the say, this was the issue. Yeah. It was the issue over women in ministry. And it sort of is again in 2022, and it's come to us in, a, in now on the other side of the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, 22 years after Southern Baptist adopted a statement of faith in which I was a member of the committee. Uh, that uh, says the office of pastor is limited to men is qualified by scripture. And we thought that settled it. Now, let's, let me be honest. I would have preferred the New Hampshire confession language about uh, 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 elders and overseers or bishops. Um, Adrian Rogers is the chairman of the committee, titanic figure in the SBC, pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis and, and the first conservative president in the SBC. And inside the work of that committee, 
he and and he was persuasive about most things you know he just came out and said look the word pastor is the one word every southern baptist understands till you get to saddleback and, and I mean, and, and so the, the point was, this is the teaching ministry of the church. This, this is what we're talking about. And at the time there were other, I mean, there were children's ministers and, 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 and uh, many different kinds of, of capacities. But when it came to the teaching ministry of the church, that, that, is, that is what the confession is speaking about. When it comes to the teaching uh, the ministry of the church, Southern Baptists were really clear, this is, uh, an office that is uh, limited to men is qualified by scripture. So, so how did we arrive at the position where we're talking about this again now, Jeremy? What, what did you do? I didn't you know, do anything, man. <laughs> I think it's because sometimes in our pragmatic way of seeing things, we can sort of, we can, we can use language in two ways, and that's an unwise way of doing it, right? So we can take a biblical term and then we can use it as an institutional title. And we think we're doing something other than that. So I can call someone a pastor in terms of a demarcation of a position without calling them a pastor in terms of what the Bible's talking about. But that's all kind of confusing. It's not good shepherding of the people. It's not a clear message. And it doesn't end up serving folks well. Well, it ends up confusing an entire denomination uh, because the denomination has to stand together on a certain level of issues or frankly, we can't cooperate together. And Southern Baptists decided decades ago, that's one issue in which we really need to, to know what we're doing. And I mean, you, you look again at the PCUSA, you look at the United Methodist Church, which, which by the way, uh, elected an openly gay married uh, bishop just, just in the last few days. And you look at all this and you go, okay. And by the way, those hermeneutics are tied together. I will insist they're tied together. If you, if you can make scripture say, we can do this, then you can make scripture on the LGBTQ issue say, we can do that. It's a, it's a very similar parallel hermeneutic. And, um, and yet what we have right now is, is a situation in which with all these other denominations, basically, I mean, they're not just becoming uh, populated by female ministries. I mean, in a lot of places, ministers, they're becoming just openly feminized uh, to where, you know, the, I, I think the average Christian just looking at that knows this is not the picture that the New Testament would indicate is what the church is supposed to look like. And, you know, Dustin, <laughs> that doesn't appear to be fair or progressive when it comes to the mentality of the world around us. But the, the, the New Testament definition of the church and the ministry just isn't compatible with the modern ideal of egalitarian opportunism. No, that's, that's absolutely right. But I, it, I think that we're facing these challenges for multiple reasons. And so it can, you can go in a liberal direction because of your hermeneutic, right? We, we've had that here right off the bat. But also, uh, I think, you can have sort of missionary impulses that are untethered from your theology or from good theology that will lead you in a very similar direction. And so as I see some of these conversations that are coming up, a lot of it appears to be driven by uh, very pragmatic, and it's a, a good word to bring out, pragmatic concerns to 
maybe look like the non-denominational church down the street that seems to be successful, but it has its uh, it has a missions impulse that's totally untethered from theology. So, Denny, what do we do about this? Well, I, I see two main challenges to what the Baptist faith and message says about uh, the pastorate in terms of it being uh, only for qualified men. Two main challenges. The first one is this idea that um, the pastoring is a gift, not an office. Right. Okay? That's a very specific thing that the former pastor of Saddleback made on a very specific argument he made on the floor of the convention this past summer in Anaheim. That, that the, the pastorate is a gift and not an office. Therefore, because it's not an office, uh, women can serve, can pastor. They can, they, they can do that. So that, that's the first argument. The second one that you're seeing is that in Southern Baptist life, we have lots of different kinds of pastors. We have senior pastors, associate pastors, lead pastors, those who serve in whatever kind of associate positions. And the, the argument is that the Baptist, faith and, the Baptist faith and message only meant to talk about senior pastors, but these other kinds of pastors can also, you know, women can fill the, those roles. That, that, that's kind of what I see it boiling down to right now with, within the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, the, the problem with that is, just to address the first, um, the New Testament doesn't address the pastor that way. Uh, it doesn't bifurcate the, the office. In fact, that's one of the things that Baptists have held ourselves to be different from other denominations. So when we look at the words in the New Testament, pastor, overseer, and, uh, and uh, 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 elder, we see those as three ways of referring to the same office, right? We saw one office there. That makes us different from Episcopalians who see, you know, an overseer maybe over the elder, okay? And so there's a tiered ministry. Baptists have historically said, that's not what we believe in. We believe there's two offices, a, a pastoral office and an elder office. Now, and the office and the function are one. Yeah, that's correct. You have a pastoral office and a deacon office, excuse me. So no, what I mean is that if you have a pastor, the office and the function are the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's, so, so all, of, all of that is, is, a, is a part of it. But when you understand that Baptists, there have never been any ambiguity on this. So if you look actually at the first um, uh, Baptist faith and message in 1925, the way that it lists out the church's scriptural officers is it says uh, bishop slash elder and, and deacons. It doesn't even use the word pastor. Then you fast forward to 1963 and it changes the language to, from el elder and bishop to pastor but the change in language did not reflect a change in belief. And, and we know that because it, all it reflected was a change in usage in churches. Churches just started referring to the lead guy more often as pastor, but they weren't expressing a change in their conviction. You know that because the primary author of 63 was Herschel Hobbes. Right. And Herschel Hobbes in his writing, he says, uh, pastor, elder, bishop, those are three ways in the New Testament of referring to the one office. He said that along with, with all other you know, Baptists, you know, that there, there are two offices. So when, when you come to 2022 and you, you have someone standing on the floor of the convention saying that pastor is different than elder because pastoring is a gift and then eldering is an office, that's, a, that's an ecclesiological problem before it's a gender issue. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of what 
Baptists believe the pastoral office is. Well, so, it's also a discontinuous with what Baptists and other evangelicals and the Christian church through 2,000 years has understood these terms to mean. And, you know, in other words, he also had to basically say, I found an article in which someone made this argument. And it just, it just is one of those situations in which he also, on the floor, uh, Rick Warren, the former pastor, founding pastor of Saddleback, went on to say, more or less, this, this, was, a, uh, this was a conclusion we were determined to get to. <laughs> Here's how we got there. And, you know, I, I, and, and Rick's a very persuasive, very uh, 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 energetic and, uh, and influential person. The question is, right now for the SPC, is this an issue we really ought to have as an argument? I mean, you know, you got you Saddleback in California, you got other churches elsewhere. I mean, why would the SPC make that an issue right now, Jeremy? Well, doctrine and theology and clarity is always important. We could also make the argument that we don't need egalitarianism to honor women. So if the concern is to honor women, we honor women by honoring God's design of humanity as a whole. And you read the New Testament and you listen to the Apostle Paul and how he speaks of women, both generally and individual in women in uh, his life and in the ministry, they're remarkably honored. And they're, a, they're essential to the function of the church. And so in one sense, it, you know, people would oppose this as like, one side trying to honor women and one side trying to be old fuddy-duddies about doctrine. That's not how it is. We believe that clear doctrine about who we are before the Lord, how we ought to function in the various roles he's distributed between males and females for our good and his glory, that actually results in the ability to honor everyone rightly and, and utilize everyone for the glory of God and his kingdom. This is going to be an issue as we go to the convention in New Orleans. It was an issue in Anaheim. It was kind of stalled by convention action until uh, it will eventually, and the, the current president of the SBC, uh, Bart Barber, and the chairman of the executive committee said that they, they are not gonna seek to impede the issue getting to the floor, messengers dealing with it uh, in New Orleans. I think it's a very healthy thing, I appreciate that. But it's really clear that this has become a fellowship cooperation issue for the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, there are those who say it shouldn't be. I'm going to argue it should be, and it is. Uh, you know, the SBC is going to have to define this issue because if you, can just, if you can just say, okay, here's one person that's the lead pastor, and anyone else of any gender can do anything else, including teaching and, and preaching, undoubtedly teaching and preaching, that you basically have just reduced the Baptist faith and message to speaking about one person in a church, which is clearly not what was ever intended. It's the teaching office. That's what the word pastor represents. It's the teaching office of the church. And uh, this is something that Southern Baptists must deal with. And uh, it's going to disappoint people one way or the other. But if we're unwilling to do that, then uh, we're just going to have an exodus of people who are frustrated that SBC won't take a stand on these issues. Yeah, because it's the issue itself, but it's also how we interpret our own documents, which will touch on a thousand other issues right. as things unfold. So it's a very important conversation. And we all have friends and people that we really love that would see things maybe differently than we do even on this issue. 
And so the temptation is to shy away and say, well, maybe we don't need to touch this for this, this sake. But that's, that's not good long-term or short-term uh, strategy in, in maintaining clarity. Right. I can't believe anyone would think that the stress level that was already apparent in Anaheim should just be sustained for 20 years. Uh, that won't happen. You, that, that's nearly impossible. There are some other issues that are swirling about for sure, and some of them are related. And uh, what, what, one of them just, just comes up pretty regularly because of the, uh, the, the overwhelming influence of the LGBTQ um, movement, the revolution in the society on sex, sexuality, marriage, and gender. Um, one of the debates, and we can't get into this in a comprehensive way, but at least to be clear that this ought to be on the denomination's concern. You've got this side A, side B argument going on among those who are trying to make a differentiation that will be directly relevant to church ministry. So Denny, I'm just going to ask you to summarize this, but it, it's, it's got to be short in order just to say this is something that that we've got to pay attention to, and it's also something that is likely to erupt in a Southern Baptist conversation. Yeah, so the side A, side B terminology is a way that Christians have been talking about their response to and views some of- Some Christians. Yeah, I'm saying air quotes because some of them aren't actually Christians. We would not recognize them as Christians. Well, that's why I, yeah. I just say your air quotes aren't necessarily seen or heard by people. So. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so you'll, because you do have some Christians, uh, uh, scare quotes. He did it again. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are making the argument, the side A's make the argument that you can follow Jesus and pursue a homosexual lifestyle. And so it'd be totally affirming and follow Jesus at the same time and, and embrace that. That's, that's basically the side, e, side A perspective. The side B perspective is the perspective that you can't do that. You, you, um, you, you can't in, engage in homosexual conduct and be faithful to Christ. Now, the problem that we've seen amongst evangelicals in the last several years is that that one piece of the side B argument is, you know, uncontroversial. Everybody agrees that homosexual behavior, an Orthodox Christian, you're, everybody believes that homosexual behavior would be sinful. The, the question is, is that there are a lot of side B folks who've embraced this idea that even though you don't participate in the activity, you could still embrace the identity. You could still say that same-sex attraction may have some rootedness in original creation or some remnant even left over in the age to come. You can see that in some of their writings. And so you've seen amongst evangelicals an enormous controversy about this, which is why you know several years ago and in 2017, a lot of us got together in Nashville to do the to do the Nashville statement, which has now been adopted by a, a ton of SBC institutions, including this one, to, to clarify that no, it's not appropriate to em, em, embrace a gay identity. Um, we're, we're glad that you know side B folks are rejecting homosexual behavior, but it's not good to embrace that identity and it, to see how same-sex attraction and orientation are also morally implicated, how the Bible speaks to it. So those are the that's the intro. Uh, intramural evangelical debate that's been going on is over this side B thing, uh, sometimes called the celibate gay Christian movement. Yeah, you mentioned something in that that might pass by a lot of ears 
And, and, and that is the fact that the argument is being made by many of those who claim a, a side B position that same-sex identity adds something to Christian testimony and to, and, and to Christian identity. And uh, I just find that absolutely impossible to square with the text of the New Testament. I agree. I mean, the, the only way that you could faithfully speak of same-sex attraction as a part of human identity is to identify it as a feature of the flesh. You know, in other words, that we, that, that we all have a sinful nature and that it's generating all kinds of uh, disobedience in our heart. And that's not just gay people, that's all of us. I mean, we're all in the same boat here. I mean, sin, different sins have different consequences, but they all have the same root. We're all dealing with the same root. So you can't, you know, single out one sin and say the pre-behavioral predispositions there are non-morally implicated, homosexuality, but it is for everybody else. No, it, it is for everybody. And ever, we really need to see that or else it's, you know, things get kind of get out of hand and it, right. it doesn't add up to people. And the identity construct has now been matched to the power of identity politics, in which case you've got movements uh, that claim kind of a moral high ground by saying, this is my identity, you can't question it. Um, and, and, and that gets to the T in LGBTQ, which, you know, e even on the left is testing their ability to hold to that ideology. I think it's a false ideology made clear in this T as a test case. But, you know, when I see some people, and I say this especially in, say, religious circles, no air quotes there, just religious uh, I see people who I honestly believe are saying things they can't plausibly believe. But one of our responsibilities, and I think the SBC is just made up, I say one of the great things about the SBC is that it's made up of like common sense Christians. Uh, there's, just a, there's just a sense in the SBC that that's just not healthy. <laughs> that's not right. And... Uh, the, the church has got to be a place where based upon the authority of scripture and, and scriptural reasoning, the church just says, man, we love you, but that's not right. And, and we can't buy into this identity paradigm without basically losing everything. Like what would discipleship look like? Uh, so this is going to be an ongoing conversation. The SBC has taken a very clear stand in, uh, in, in resolutions in the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message in uh, subsequent actions such as, uh, you know, removing churches that, uh, that affirm such an identity. But, you know, even when the Baptist Faith and Message was adopted in 2000, the transgender revolution as we know it now, it was by no means uh, coalesced in, in terms of its arguments. We're facing arguments now that didn't even exist in 2000. The sex abuse issue uh, has taken up uh, an awful lot of the attention of the SBC, and I would have to say rightly so, rightly so. And the SBC adopted a, a pretty comprehensive first stage plan uh, at the convention in Anaheim uh, just a few months ago. There's a task force, an implementation task force working to try to continue to frame that issue out now. You know, I think it's important to ask every one of us, what do we believe 
that the Southern Baptist Convention should say on this issue uh, and should require of our churches? Well, like we said, it's a voluntary association that we're on. So I think the, the best strategy to increase our ability to love and protect victims and uphold God's values of justice and righteousness is to talk directly to pastors and church leaders and help them gain the knowledge that they need for wise action. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, we, there's a number of different trainings that are being developed both within the convention and in, in, in our seminaries and things like that, which equip people to understand both the prevention aspect as well as the response aspect to abuse because the prevention aspect's really important. We wanna have good policies and practices in place that mitigate the chance for these things to occur amidst us. And then we want good responsive practices, both in terms of knowing the appropriate authorities to report to when things are disclosed, as well as how to help the family in the midst of like the first initial crisis aspect of it, as well as then what ongoing care looks like. So my heart for our students going out, my heart for our pastors in the convention, my heart for women's ministry leaders and all those who have some degree of, of influence and oversight responsibility is that, that we would take very seriously that all these things don't just naturally come intuitively to us in the moment of like, we have to build our knowledge base in order to carry out our directive to love. Yep. I would say yeah, you start with we won't tolerate any abuse or anyone who tries to cover up or hide abuse. Um, and then you make your commitment clear to handle that uh, as an association of churches in ways that respect uh, actually who we are as a convention. And so um, recognizing that that will look different than it may look for other denominations that are, are more um, a characteristic of, of a traditional denomination. This has been a topic here for Southern Baptists over the last, what, three or four years now of special concern, you know, going back at least to the 2019 convention. Um, but for me, it's been more on the front burner uh, because of you, uh, even before that. Way back in 2012, in the wake of the Penn State scandal, you took that opportunity to really educate the campus, especially those of us who are employed here, as to what our responsibilities are. That was a, that was a decade ago. And uh, that made it a huge impression on me, not just as an employee here, but you know, as a pastor, and what, what our responsibilities are. And so the convention you know, is, is just now completing some um, new structures to, to deal with the policing of its own boundaries. But what, what I'm hoping for, what I'm praying for, is that that will never have to be accessed because local churches will just be faithful. The main thing that needs to happen is that local churches need to be faithful in addressing abusers in their midst. So there, there can't be any kind of covering up when this happens. You need to, especially if you're a mandatory reporter, you need to report immediately to proper authorities. And then you're, so you need to, to let the jurisdiction of the state have its proper God-given jurisdiction in, in that. You need to be uh, 
spearheading that if you're a pastor and making sure that your church and everybody employed there knows what their responsibilities are and then your church's discipline needs to re- to reflect that so you know I, i'm really concerned that churches be healthy and that we don't have to have this go all the way up the chain to the convention you know having to deal with this because churches are faithfully dealing with it at the local level i mean that that's the real reflection of our polity right is that we are we are policing our own boundaries, our own borders, and then we're, we're functioning faithfully under Christ with him as our, as our head. And so that's what I'm hoping and praying for in our churches. And I certainly share that hope. I just have to say that uh, what we have right now is brokenness that has to be addressed and responsibility that has to be taken up by the convention. Because I go back to what I said originally, the SBC has no power over a local church. It can't invade. We don't have... We don't have an army to invade a local church. We don't have any agents to send out to the local church. But the SBC does have the responsibility to define its own membership. And a church that is found to be uh, uncorrected and deficient in this area is, uh, is going to be a, uh, a church that I think the SBC will eventually uh, say is not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Because false doctrine and false practice are yeah. both uh, disqualifying. That's right. They are. I, I, I think when you look at this, there are a couple other things just very quickly that need to be said. And, and one of them is that there has been a wrongful instinct that has become apparent in many evangelical circles. And that wrongful instinct comes down to this. And, and, and it's basically what we would define as moralism which is to say all we have here is a sin that we can understand. And we're gonna deal with that because we understand that sin. So if you have a claim of abuse and they're two unmarried people, there's been a temptation in many evangelical circles to say, well, we don't have a clue what to think about on the abuse angle, but that's sin because they're having sex outside of marriage and that's all there is to it and that's the limit of our responsibility. And we now know that 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 is not enough, that there is much more to the situation than that. The the question of sexual sin does not disappear. It is still the church's responsibility, but there is a context of abuse in which, I mean, certain things are, we just begin with with the understanding that if you are in authority over someone, then any kind of, sexual expression or, 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 or sexual activity is just absolutely categorically wrong and rightly defined as abuse. And so for, for evangelicals, this is a tough thing because we have to think in two tracks and we have to understand both of them have biblical justification. And, and one of them is we have to say that consent, number one, is not enough to establish a sexual act or relationship as morally right. It's not enough. But we also have to understand it's not insignificant. (laughs) It's not insignificant in that even if a sexual act or a sexual relationship is legitimate according to scripture, consent does not disappear as as a meaningful issue. And where there is no rightful sexual expression uh, or sexual expression, I should say, that can only be sinful, the sin is infinitely compounded by abuse. 
And uh, so I, I'm, you know, even discussing these things is difficult, but the reality of abuse in a broken world is one that has been disregarded by the larger world and then it's been politicized. And it has been disregarded in the church and now it is traumatized. And it is actually our job as believers, as pastors and as leaders. And the SBC is just a part of the larger world in this. There is no place to escape uh, these responsibilities. There's no place to escape sin. Our responsibility in this generation is to show the world and uh, to, uh, to lead our own churches and church members to understand this is a responsibility we're called to. We're gonna have to figure out what is right in terms of the SBC's responsibility with churches and Denny's right. Ultimately, the churches are the churches. The SBC is just the extension of a cooperative right. mission and so we've got to hope we can produce one thing in this school. Our job is to produce pastors and church leaders and, and Christian leaders who will go out absolutely committed to help the church to avoid any opportunity for abuse and then to deal rightly where in a sinful world uh, abuse happens or uh, accusations of abuse arise. No one said this is going to be easy. I, I want to conclude here by saying that I've been a Southern Baptist all my life I was a Southern Baptist before I was a Christian. In that, I was already enrolled in Southern Baptist Sunday School and Cradle Roll. If you don't know what Cradle Roll was, you're not quite legit. <laughs> we didn't baptize babies in the SBC, but we did enroll them. And uh, all I can tell you is that I have learned that there is no body of Christians on earth I've had the opportunity to observe up close and personal that I would more trust to get these questions right than the SBC. I will also tell you the SBC never deals with things quickly. The convention meets two days a year and we're in a new world in which the convention meets two days a year. Twitter's going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Twitter ain't the SBC. And the SBC is made up of people from our churches that go and get into a room and sing together and pray together and try to do the right thing together. So I just have to tell you, I want to give you some confidence. I think the health that you see by God's grace on this campus and in these students and in this faculty and in the community at Southern Seminary is indicative of, uh, of what we hope and pray for and and look to see all over the Southern Baptist Convention. And if those churches weren't healthy, this institution would not be healthy. But we need to move forward, always striving for greater health, greater doctrinal clarity, greater joy in the gospel, and, uh, and greater purity of life, figuring out how to deal these, with these things together. We do not have bishops or a council of cardinals to figure any of this out. It is up to us, and I say this as someone of a certain age, I look out at you and say, quicker than you think, it's all up to you. I wanna thank those who joined me on the panel today. There's so much to discuss. We are one minute from running out of time, and we're actually gonna end on time. There we go. Thanks to Jeremy Pierre, 
Thanks to Dustin Bruce. Thanks to, to Professor Denny Burke for joining with me today. Thanks for coming. I'm going to ask Dustin Bruce just to lead us in a quick word of prayer, and we are gone. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for uh, the opportunity to belong to an, a denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention. Lord, we pray for its health, and Lord, we ask that you would help us to do our part uh, in making it healthier and healthier uh, to the result of the glorifying of your name. We pray all things in Christ's name. Amen.